0: Hi, I'm Susan Foch, and when I was 18 years old, I launched a national nonprofit organization out of my freshman college dorm room. Now, with almost a decade of experience under my belt, I'm here to teach you my tried and true tips and tricks for running your own nonprofit or social enterprise, and how to build it from the ground up. You're listening to this podcast because you're ready to make a difference in this world. I see you, I hear you, and I'm ready to help you. Now let's make an impact together. You're listening to the Make an Impact podcast, episode 21. When I say that this was a dream come true interview for me to do, (laughs) Lord, do I mean it. Getting to sit down with Heather French Henry was something I have dreamed of being able to do throughout my entire time through in the Miss America organization, starting back in 2012, getting to have such a long conversation with her was such a treat. And this will forever be one of the most treasured episodes that I will have gotten to record for the Make an Impact podcast. Heather French Henry, for those in our pageant sphere, will know her popularly as the Millennial Miss America. She was Miss America 2000 and also the first Miss America from the state of Kentucky to bring home the crown. But she also is an an intense and amazing veterans advocate. She has done so much work and changed the landscape dramatically for veterans all across the country, but really specifically in her home state of Kentucky for female veterans, for homeless veterans. Um, She has done just such amazing work. And on top of that, um, I'm pretty sure that the woman does not sleep. (laughs) at all. Um, She's also a nonprofit foundation founder, a business owner, a fashion designer, a children's book author, and literally a thousand other things. And (laughs) we go through so much of her resume in this interview. When I tell you that this interview is a treat and a half, but also one of the most inspiring interviews I've gotten to do where we talk about the current political climate. Granted, we recorded this before the election, but you know, what it means to actually be a woman running and for office in twenty twenty, what does that landscape still look like? What are the realities that we're facing? What kind of mindset you need to have going into something like Miss America, other aspects for business and nonprofits and working in government and public policy? and I mean, this <laughs> this podcast is insane. You guys are gonna love this so much. I loved it so much. So without any further ado, I am so thrilled to introduce you all to Miss America 2000 and a life-changing veterans advocate, Heather French Henry. Heather, do you want to explain a little bit more about yourself?
1: Well, um, of course, you know, I'm Heather French Henry, Miss America 2000, a title that will precede me and succeed me, uh, certainly in life. Uh, But most importantly, I'm a wife, a mother a businesswoman, a philanthropist, and someone who has become very involved in the veteran and military community uh, through the direct impact of my dad's service and the impact it had on his life and our family's life. So um, it's interesting when you talk about that title of Miss America, it was Debbie Turner that told me and gave me the insight into the fact that um, you know, that title will precede you and succeed you, but you can do a lot with that. And so I've chosen to really encompass everything that Miss America had to offer then and still has to offer today. So it, it kind of is a part of my daily life, but has impacted me in a way that it, it gave me a ladder in order to be able to step up uh, to a few other platforms, but uh, to recognize that it really gave me a great foundation, I think is very important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, so I'm sure you know this, that you have always been my favorite Miss America (laughs) because I feel like (laughs) we just, you know, it's like, it's the person that you really connect with the most that I think inspires you the most. And for you, uh, we both have Marine Corps fathers who both also served in Vietnam. So I always felt this immediate like draw to you um, that you had such similar service work that I was doing. And then the fact that you've continued that after your time as Miss America, I think it's so easy to be like, well, that was that chapter of my life and pack it in a box and... It's done. The fact that you kept doing it and you still are such a fantastic advocate today always really inspired me. So for the Miss well, America junkies.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yes, that listen to this podcast. Can you talk a little bit? We'll start there with, uh, with a little bit of your Miss America journey and how you always kind of viewed the social impact initiative, the platform um, portion of the organization.
1: Well, I think it's very important, first and foremost, to thank all of the Miss America organization uh, volunteers, because during my time, and I'm not sure if it's the same today, but we had about 300,000 volunteers nationwide that really Uh, were the foundation of Miss America from local uh, directors to state directors and everybody else um, certainly in between. And it took me half a decade to win a state title like Miss Kentucky. So it was a lot of hands, uh, a big village that helped me to achieve that dream of Miss America. And I would be remiss if I didn't say a huge thank you Mm -hmm. to all of those for their uh, perseverance, endurance, and patience uh, throughout that time. But I think for the Miss America junkies, I think what a lot of them always ask is did I did I do pageants my whole life? And, being raised in a small state like Kentucky and in a small rural area like Augusta and Maysville, Kentucky. Yes. I mean, I did county fair pageants. Um, I did Little Mr. and Miss. Of course, you know, those aren't what you see today. I'm like toddlers and tears. We really didn't have that type of atmosphere. I mean, these were like you're in the middle of a horse rink, for goodness sake, on a plywood stage that, you know, sat out all year long. And by the time you walked across it, you were kind of going in a little bit of a hilly direction walking across that. And so, funny, And I always thought that my Miss America sisters had a similar background, but as I grew older in the sisterhood, I came to realize that um, we all have a very diverse background in how we came to be involved with Miss America, and a majority of the sisters did not have a long pageant uh, lifetime or uh, lifespan, but I did. And I loved it. It was not all of my life, but it was part of my life. I, you know, I did musical theater, my family sang Southern gospel music. So I was always on a stage of some sort was heavily involved in Girl Scouts. I got my Girl Scout Gold Award in 1992. I mean, I was in that from the beginning to the end. I'm still heavily involved in Girl Scouts here in Kentucky and helping them raise money because I think that that type of leadership experience for young women is very important, just like it is with the Miss America organization. But um, I did all types of uh, little pageants and there weren't a lot available. So County Fair was great. And I always encourage all the young ladies out there that... You know, you don't have to spend big bucks in order to get the experience, certainly. And we used to scrape together, you know, dollars just to go to a yard sale to try to find a dress. I mean, it wasn't like these days where you can just go on eBay or, you know, or somewhere else on the internet to find these amenities. I mean, I'm I'm amazed that my daughter can find shoes so cheap on the internet, but in our day, you you really had to kind of scrape things together. And it was very important for me, I think, informing who I am today that I was not given everything. I didn't, I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth because it made me very resourceful. And if I were to think of one trait about myself, that is very important in everything that I do is the resourcefulness. And I always tell young ladies in your journey, uh, not only in Miss America, but it is probably more applicable to Miss America, that it's about the growth of yourself during this process. It's not necessarily about going in, having the most expensive wardrobe, um, and winning the first year, getting to Miss America. It's not, a, it's not an overnight success. And so when I won, when I was 24, I really had the first dream that I wanted to be Miss American when I was like four years old. So that was always in the back of my mind in everything that I did. It helped to guide my path. It helped me to make low-risk choices instead of high-risk choices, where when you got to high school and and friends would go out and party or do whatever, you know, I always had that in the back of my mind that I don't want anything to mess up my path to Miss America. And I think everyone, and I hope that my children also have dreams. They don't necessarily have to be Miss America dreams, but the spirit of what it is to have an attainable goal that is that large and you build those small steps. So Miss America helped me build that path. And even in situations where maybe it wasn't necessarily going straight to the crown, but maybe it was studying for a test or maybe it was making those low risk choices. It was always in my mind somewhere that, okay, if I want to be Miss America one day, then I need to make low risk choices. I need to be smart about my path. And it's not to meaning to mean that, you know, you, there isn't some curve in that path, certainly, because that's what life is about, right? Mm-hmm. But being resourceful and being able to gather all the amenities that you need, being able to watch and observe. You know, I've told my daughter who is now competing, which is really weird for me, but <laughs> it's, it's about the self-growth. It is, it's so weird to step back and to watch her compete. And you think that instinctually that they, they have what you had or they see or saw what you see. And it's not necessarily the same. Their perspective is totally different. So being able to watch her and to guide her, you know, one of the things that, again, like I tell young ladies is learn how to observe. And this isn't everything in life, learn how to be able to to be taught, to take constructive criticism, to, to teach yourself, not berate yourself, but you can always be better. You know, in the half decade, five years it took me to win, you know, every year when you lost, because it's essentially what it is, there's a winner there's a loser. I know in today's society, we love to say you're all winners. Of course, everybody's a winner for participating, but only one's going to walk away with a crown. And so it's not necessarily just about the crown, but when you step back after not winning and you learn how to look at yourself or in any other realm, look at your project or something that didn't succeed... It's always important to be able to critique. And I think that being a designer and going through design school where we had critiques every quarter um, at DAP, which is the University of Cincinnati's College of Design, Architecture, Art, and Planning. Um, It's a rigorous program, five years, and I'm still catching up on the sleep that I didn't get during that time. But (laughs) what was important is that also taught me how to take those types of critiques and look at it not as an admonishment but as something that, okay, well, you know, I'll take that and I will try to figure out how I can make this better, make this project better, make the design better, make myself better. Even today at 45, you know, 21 years later after Miss America, there are still points where I go, okay, I can be better today than I was yesterday. So, Uh, For the Miss America junkies out there, um, it really was all of those volunteers and people on that path that helped me to be able to see that and I think that that's extremely important when we tell young people, this is not something that life isn't something that you have to do alone, you might feel alone at times. But it's something that we can all do together. And I really think that also resonates in the military community mm-hmm. like you as a Marine Corps daughter. And, and I so appreciate everything you've done, too, with Operation Not Alone. So that's pretty awesome. I love that. <laughs> um, but when you look at the veterans and military community, they're, um, oddly enough, a lot alike, uh, a lot like than this America Family and organization, and I always tell my military friends, I said, you know, we as Miss Americas refer to people outside of Miss America as civilians, just like the military <laughs> looks at. You know, the difference between a military person and family and the civilian population. Right. Um, Miss America sort of refer to people like that too, because it's just um, sometimes you feel isolated and alone. But knowing how to reach out for help is extremely important.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that was fantastic, but I have so many follow-up questions to that. So number one, was actually a funny thing you said about, you know, when you were like in high school and college and those slow risk choices of like, well, is this going to impact, you know, me becoming Miss America? And I think, I think it's funny you had the forethought to think that before there was social media, because now it's like, you know, one tweet from 10 years ago can, you know, crush an entire person's career. And I was always very aware of that in college as well, because we really just had like Facebook to start with and then kind of came Instagram. But like, is that a conversation you have with your daughters now who are much more deep in social media? Just kind of like the the ripple effect of choices?
1: Every single day and for those who have children it is always in the forefront of your mind when you talk about what they are putting out there on social media especially as they get older and they're looking for jobs or they're starting to build their resume for scholarships for school and now especially uh, with one of my daughters competing in the organization um, it is our family too I mean I think that too we have a little bit of a different perspective because because my husband was lieutenant governor and a prominent Mm. surgeon and myself as Miss America and all that I've done, even before we had kids, we understood in the political realm, right, that you always have to be careful about what you say, because what you say today is tomorrow's headline, certainly. And so I think that that entire experience of Miss America and being in politics really gave me a good foundation of trying to think and prepare my children for what they too say, because not only what they say and post affects them, but it also affects us because Mm -hmm. it can come back. That ripple effect is pretty huge. And so we, we have daily conversations, even just recently we went on a small little vacation and, you know, I told the girls, I said, you know, you're not allowed to post while we're out of town. I don't want people to know we're out of town. I want to be careful about what you post. Um, we've had very serious conversations. The, the board of Taylor's uh, pageant committee, which is awesome, have had very uh, serious conversations with their contestants as well. And I think that all young people need to realize that everything that they post, everything that every video that they do um, is out there forever. And it is, while it can be very scary, certainly there are some benefits. You know, I love being able to pull up. Um, you know, tons of backstory um, on some of the things that I've done, videos that people have posted on YouTube from interviews I've done, you know, 20 years ago, which is awesome because they've had to convert it from a VHS tape <laughs> to a digital media, <laughs> which is great. Um, I love that that they've done that, but yeah. um, that the fingerprint, I think kids today uh, become very accustomed to the thought that like Snapchat, that things disappear mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't. And so I think it's very important to have that conversation. We also, though, as a society, I also feel like need to have a lot of forgiveness as well. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I don't see a lot of, especially in the political realm where we dig up things from people, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that you go, really? I mean, is that applicable today? Um, Am I the same person today as I was, you know, 40 years ago? You know, there's a lot of change and growth that people go through. And I think to make people apologize for mistakes, but then also, you know, if you did make that mistake, you know, own it, say, you know what? Yeah, I was young and stupid. I mean, why people can't just come out and say, yeah, sure. Okay. I was young and stupid, but that is not who I am today. So let's move Mm -hmm. forward. We as a society are very hypocritical. uh, Mm -hmm. Certainly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, and that's, you know, I see that a lot every day with my dad. He's almost seventy five years old, and there are so many things like he'll tell me stories or like jokes that were a thing back then. And I think I'm like, oh, that would never fly today, but in this like in a memory concept, I was like, I can't tell you that your memory was wrong, you know, (laughs) that like because it was very acceptable then and although it's not now, like, you can't vilify someone for what happened necessarily then before they knew better.
1: No, we aren't. And that's what probably the most tragic thing, and, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, being in government, and, and maybe this is probably a good segue to even talk about, that, that the, the harshness of our society today creates this really um, unbelievable stalemate in the process of of creating resolutions or solutions to problems. And even then, sometimes we create solutions where there are no problems. And so I think it's very important in our society to figure out how are we going to start coming together instead of creating this divisiveness where it's that blame game constantly, it's that self-righteous, hypocritical, I'm better than you. And it's it really is, a negative process when you think about getting into government in an elected capacity. You know, I was very fortunate to be appointed as commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Veterans Affairs, and that really f- was an amazing experience. And I really have to thank, you know, the governor at the time, Governor Bashir Senior, because now the Governor Bashir Junior is now uh, okay. the uh, the governor. But you know, to be able to to be offered that leadership position because of all the work that really I started during my Miss America year, to see that come to fruition was awesome. But then to run for an office and see how different it is to be in a leadership position as an appointee and make a difference than to try to be in an elected position where really none of your experience really matters in the voting process. I was very upset to figure that out. And, you know, my husband had run for office before and been in office, but until you're doing it yourself, you don't realize that the voters really don't care about your experience. You know, they, the campaign has so much more effect on voters and the parties that you're in and the, and the preconceived notions of who you are are, or what really drives the vote. And it's really a bit upsetting because when you think about, you know, leading a department as large as the Department of Veterans Affairs that I did in Kentucky with 910 employees and a $102 million budget, healthcare facilities, um, staff. I mean, it was it's a large department for our small state. And the office I was running for was substantially smaller and less in administrative issues. And you go, wow, you know, I mean, I, they dumbed me down to just being a beauty queen who, you know, could blow kisses and wave. And you go, Oh my gosh, you know, for the last 20 years, look at all that I've done. And when I would come Mm -hmm. up to uh, an interview, even people that I knew, and we talk about, you know, your father and older generations saying and doing things that aren't really appropriate today's standards, but people who know better still have these bad habits. And Mm -hmm. um, I would go into interviews and I would be introduced as, oh, you know, you're most famous as a former Miss American wife of a lieutenant governor. And I'm like, I can't believe you just introduced me like that. Like, That's all that's in the 20 years that I've done my resume that you see. But yet in the male, uh, you know, candidate, you know, they read down the entire bio of, you know, uh, credentials and accreditations. And you go, I mean, the vast difference and stark difference. And then you have to wind up fighting for yourself, which, you know, as I tell my my daughters growing up in a society like this today Mm -hmm. is that, you know, we're all going to encounter these incredible obstacles, every single one of us, no matter what walk of life, our, our own obstacles are relative to us. They may not be, mine may not be the same as yours as somebody else, but no one makes it through this life um, untouched by tragedy, um, by, you know, mountains that you have to climb. Certainly they get put in your path, but the success is that you recognize that it's not always going to be easy and that it's not always going to be fair, mm-hmm. and that you have to learn how to work over the problem, under the problem, around the problem to achieve your objective. And for you and I, who are born into military families, I think that mm-hmm. that almost becomes inherent where you're sort of taught that, where you just you have your mission, you have your objective, And you're going to meet that objective. No matter what you do, you're going to get it done, right? Yep. And again, we go back to that resourcefulness is how am I going to achieve this objective in the difficult environment I'm being given, whether it is maybe I'm in a very sexist environment, and I'm going to have to learn to work around that, go into a situation in a male-dominated field, not carry that chip on my shoulder, but earn the respect. Is it fair that I have to earn the respect as a woman? No. But is it my reality that I might have to do that? Yes. And I'm not going to let that deter me from getting my mission done. I mean, it's just that sense of accomplishment. And I am surprised at how many people will choose to look at that brick wall or that mountain and say, this is unfair and stomp their feet and just stop and not learn to work their way around it. I mean, even as Miss America, you know, we talk about some of the difficulties during that path and that journey. And for the first three to four months, it's an incredibly weird journey. I mean, it's a dream you've achieved, but then you realize that this journey really isn't about you. It's about you representing, of course, your platform, but the entire organization. And as President Bush and President Clinton, we were together at an event and they said, you know, it is interesting that every Miss America, before you and after you, will people will form an opinion about them through your service. And it is interesting when people meet me even today, I have to constantly think, Wow, whatever I do today or whatever reflection that I give to people, they're going to form an opinion about every contestant, every person involved in Miss America that came before me, that is in it now, that will come after me because I might be that only tie ever to this organization. And that's a heavy burden, right? That you go, oh my gosh, I got to carry this the rest of my life. But you don't realize that until probably a few months into your year as Miss America and you go, wow, okay, I get it now. But there are also things that I want to achieve during this year, and how are we going to do that? And a little bit of it is learning, like in politics, how to lobby, how to meet your objective in this environment. You know, I, I created some goals for myself, and it wasn't always easy, but by the end of the year, uh, no matter the scrapes and bruises you're sure to go through, I think 20 years later, through all of the rest of life that I have experienced, I look back and I go, yeah, I mean, I I was able to do it. Were there still some things I might change? Sure. Who wouldn't say that? If you don't say that, I think you're sort of lying to yourself. But you go, you know, after, you know, having kids and career and everything else, you go, wow, that year really wasn't, those times that were tough weren't really that tough. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all perspective. It's all relative to that time, uh, certainly. But, you know, it also provides a moment of clarity where you know, you can come back and hopefully tell the organization, hey, there are things we need to change. And I I think Miss America is in that change process, which is never easy, right? Mm -hmm. And it it provides a hundred year old organization a chance yet again, Mm -hmm. to be able to um, reflect on who they are, uh, where society is, how to meet our objective as an organization in this current environment. And again, it comes back down to, how are we going to move these mountains? How are we going to continue to thrive and service the young women who are part of this organization? And um, I'm still very passionate, certainly, about that because of the foundation it gave me.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think we could do a whole separate podcast on changing, oh, yes. <laughs> going into <laughs> the new era of Miss America. Um, one yeah. question I've always had for you actually was. Um, I think it was a different podcast interview that I heard this story you said, um, that for, and tell me if I got this right or wrong, uh, when you went in for your Miss America interview, you ended it by saying some variation of, you know, whether you pick me today or not, like I'm still doing this work. I'm still passionate about helping veterans. Like I'm still going to do this. It would just make my life a lot easier, (laughs) you know,
1: right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell us that story. Cause I always, that kept that with me hard. And especially when I finished my, you know, my Miss America time, my last local title was just in 2019 and the amount of people who flooded me with questions of like, Oh, so now that you're done and you're not Miss Wisconsin, are you just going to like shut down operation not alone? Like, are you done? And I was like, right. I started a nonprofit like eight (laughs) years ago to just like throw it away. Cause I was like, Oh, well I'm not Miss America anymore. So.
1: Because it's incredibly hard to do. Oh, no, I, I totally get it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So let's backtrack a little bit. Yes, that story is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But I do want to for those young women who may be listening who haven't quite found that perfect platform or social impact initiative, whatever we're calling it today, um, that You know, that, too, is a self-discovery process. So the first few years that actually the first four out of five years, I did not have veterans initiatives as my platform um, because I was still very sensitive as to what my family had been through. Mm -hmm. You know, there when you have a family member who has um, addiction or had addiction Uh, My father suffered with substance abuse and PTSD, um, and most of my time going through the process, he was still battling a lot of those demons, and when you come from a small town or small area, it's not the thing you want to highlight, right? Um, It was very difficult for my family. It was very difficult for us growing up, and people in the community knew, and I felt very ashamed at times, but it really took the final year when I almost didn't compete mm. um, and I almost gave up the dream of Miss America. I was in my uh, last year of eligibility and my dad actually went into an induced coma. He was in the hospital. And when I went to go visit him right before they induced him, um, he said, I want you to try one more time. Our veterans need to Miss America. And to me, that's when I had the epiphany. That's when the light went off. You know, that was my dad telling me that it's okay to tell our story because we had always tried to bury all of those issues. And my dad had started to turn the corner. When I was about 15, he went into a rehabilitation center, um, it took him several times and several tries to, to work things out. My uncle was a homeless veteran who was found on the streets of Gainesville, Florida, put into um, a veteran-specific drug rehab program called the Serenity House at the time, which was in Daytona Beach. And so two men in my life had been so impacted by their negative return home and their time in military, although there are some great stories that my father tells me now, but then it just had made him very angry, um, the way he was treated when he came home, that people walked on the other side of the streets. And, you know, at the time, the VA healthcare system was really just utilizing uh, medicine to numb the pain. I mean, that was really, this, that that was the call of the order for the day, really. I mean, we've come leaps and bounds when it comes to mental health within the veterans community. Still not perfect, but we're getting there, right? And it, I just didn't know how to tell that story in most of my journey. And in that last year, Mm -hmm. um, it totally changed for me. It changed being able to tell our story and working through that changed my entire perspective on not only competing for Miss America, which is something I always wanted to do, but how I prepared for Miss America and not just Miss Kentucky, but Miss America it really changed the way I looked at even going to the gym. I mean, it was, it no longer was about me as Heather. It was about, I want to be this champion. These, these things need to be talked about. And so I think it just gave me such a drive and a greater purpose beyond just being Heather on that stage, being crowned. And that's why in that interview, you know, I said, you know, with or without the crown, I'm going to walk out of these four doors and I'm still going to do, because it was the time it needed to be done. I mean, you have to think about in that switch from the 20th to the 21st century, you know, we had Saving Private Ryan, we had the World War II Memorial Foundation going on. I mean, homeless veterans were finally started to being, uh, to be discussed um, around the country, we had stand downs, which bring resources together for homeless veterans. And, you know, those were sweeping the nation. I mean, It was a conversation that needed to be had. And this was the time to do it. And so I had ju- I knew at that moment that this was going to last the rest of my life beyond the crown. And I also realized that I think I came to a realization that I actually was fine. I was going to be fine as Heather, even without the crown, and that's a very big statement I think to make, because I think that there are still a lot of young women that compete and have competed who may not have been successful that maybe carry that burden that somehow that crown is going to fulfill them uh, to a greater purpose. And you know, I'm here to tell these young ladies, it's okay if if you don't win. It's okay if you if if you never won and you're out there going shoulda, coulda, woulda. You know, that regret of, oh, if I only had won the crown. Yeah, you know, it's great. But it doesn't make you, you know, somebody special. You make the crown. If you get the crown, you make that special. It's not really about it fulfilling your life because you can still do great things and sometimes even greater things without that crown. Um, on your head. It's more about the journey, and so I want to encourage somebody out there who might be listening that uh, you are more than the crown. It's not that doesn't define who you are, and so that's why I got to that point when I walked on stage as Miss Kentucky or at Miss Kentucky. I remember walking on stage in evening gown, and you walked right in front of the judges, and I remember looking at the judges, and for the first time, I realized in my last year of eligibility that I I'm fine if this dream. Of winning Miss Kentucky to get to Miss America, and when we, maybe that's not what was supposed to happen on this journey, maybe this self-realization that I'm going to be perfectly fine without this. I just have to go through this in order to have this chapter closed to get to my next one. And one of the judges even said after the pageant was over, when we had our sort of judges roundtable. You know, he said, wow, when you walked out of that interview, I thought she really doesn't need this crown, you know, to, to be successful. But if we give her this crown, she's going to do some great things with it. And I thought that was pretty powerful. So walking into Miss America, I looked at it the same way. And when I made top 10, you know, that was great. I went backstage and I, you know, I was really thankful. I said, Lord, I I just thank you for letting me get this far. If this is as far as I'm supposed to go, I want to be okay with this. And then, when I was called fifth for top five, I did the same thing. We went backstage during to change uh, during a television commercial. I said the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if fourth runner up is as far as I 'm supposed to go, let me be fine. Let me be content with this journey because i 've done everything that I possibly could to this moment, and maybe my mission isn 't to be Miss America, maybe it 's to support the young woman who 's going to be Miss America. And of course, you know it was great to be crowned. Certainly, it was awesome that Marie Osmond got to be the mm-hmm. first woman in history to announce Miss America. That was a pretty monumental year. It was great to be crowned with the Millennium Crown, and I always it's right behind me, right there. You um, <laughs> can't see it in the podcast, but I've got it right there. Um, yeah. I actually have two crowns because I had the traveling crown, which is the traditional silver and crystal, and the Millennium Crown. It was very appropriate, you know, as a Marine Corps daughter. It's gold and red, which is the Marine exactly. Corps colors. Of course, <laughs> I dress was white and blue, which made me all American, red, white, and blue, Miss America. But, oh my God. you know, I think it was, you know, that self-realization going into that Miss America interview and telling the judges, you know, I'm, I'm fine if I don't get this crown. I'm still going to do this work, but with the crown, I could make really some great progress and fundamental change uh, within the veterans community. I also had a pretty contentious interview. So I was next to last in all the interviews, uh, which meant that the judges had had all of these other young ladies, uh, wonderful, I'm sure, interviews from all the other contestants. Um, And by the time they got to me, it was interesting because I was told it was not going to be like a press conference, but it wound up being exactly like a political press conference where judges were talking over each other. And, you know, you have to like interrupt them and go, she was talking first. And so you... I had to control the interview, which was Mm -hmm. very uncomfortable, but now later in life, and obviously being on both sides of the interviewing process, uh, you learn how to do quite effectively to get your message out. And it was interesting to have to tell a judge who came back to me. I'll never forget. I had this Monica Lewinsky question And when they asked me if I would, I think, choose to be a friend with Linda Tripp or Monica Lewinsky or something crazy like that, um, who would I choose? And Monica Lewinsky, of course, was closer to my age. So I said, well, I would choose Monica Lewinsky. Um, and then they came back and said, so are you saying that there's no hope for Linda Tripp or something? it was just, such a crazy thing. And it was a guy who I think was, uh, an anchor for 48 hours, which was an old political commentary show. And I had to actually come back to him. I said, you asked me to make the choice that i made the choice. And so I actually said, ne- basically next. And I went to another judge and I'll <laughs> never forget that the judge came up to me afterwards and... The judge who I kind of pointed to, to, because she was a former nun who had become a lawyer, it was a crazy story. And she said, "Oh my gosh!" I was so thankful that you just took the power in that situation. You took control. And she said, "Oh my gosh, that was that was it for me." I just knew that you were mine, Miss America. I was like, because <laughs> I literally left that interview thinking, "I just lost Miss America." <laughs> oh my! I, mean, I came out. my traveling companion she goes how'd it go and I go I have no idea
0: (laughs) (laughs) what I mean I that's a question I think no one or just a style that no one is like taught to prepare for for Miss America interview at any level like they can be difficult for sure but I don't think anyone would be like so would you rather be friends with Monica Lewinsky (laughs) (laughs) or
1: yeah Yeah, right and you're going First off, I do want to say um, that if I were the person I am today and I was a contestant, I guarantee you that if I were asked a political question on stage, I probably would say, you know what, it's really none of your business. I mean, I really, uh, I cannot stand when they ask politically charged questions because I don't think it's fair to the contestant. Because as Miss America, you're, you really have to be careful. And I sort of fudged those lines a little bit during my year, certainly by switching my political affiliation and everything. But there was a reason um, for doing it to be able to be more substantive during my year for veterans issues. But it really puts the contestant in a very weird place. Because then you're looking at the judges knowing that half may be on one side and half may be on the other. And do you answer the question honestly to yourself? Or do you answer how the judges, because you're scared that you're going to offend a judge? And I'm not so sure that those questions are really, again, applicable to the job of what we're looking for in Miss America, who has to learn how to be all things to all the people that she's Mm -hmm. serving. And that becomes very difficult. So, the person I am now would answer some of those questions very differently. Mm-hmm. I may, you know what? I may not win the crown then if I did that. Right.
0: <laughs> but I think what's, I think a great takeaway from that though is those judges didn't pick you based off of those answers. They picked you off of how you handled that situation. And right. I, that I, I wonder so much often if, if those politically charged questions are really just to see how you can respond I'm to things sure. like that when you're yeah. in that kind of position. So it's still not really correct because very divisive things can come out of it. Yeah, but.
1: because then the audience boos. And I mean, I've been in situations mm-hmm. where these poor girls are asked, you know, mm-hmm. even about gay marriage or if they're a Republican or a Democrat and how they would vote. And you kind of go, oh my gosh, because the audience is no longer a civilized audience, right? In the old days, they would never boo or cheer Uh, depending on a contestant's political answer. And I've experienced even at the national level where a contestant has given her honest opinion and done it well, and the crowd boos. And you go, you know what? I'm not quite sure that that is a proper scenario to put these young ladies in because then what does that do to their self-worth so I don't know I mean that's why I don't judge anymore I judge Miss Virgin Islands only because I got to go to the Virgin Islands right and there were (laughs) only a handful of contestants so I just I'd give them all 10 just for walking on the stage right well (laughs) I remember
0: so the only Miss America I got to go to was 2017 when it was Atlantic City so the year Savvy Shields won so I guess technically that was 2016 um and i thought it was so mean because they asked savvy and they asked um another contestant it you know because it was an election year and so the questions were like hillary clinton what do you think right it was so right and then it was like donald trump what do you think and i was like that's so rude i was like don't do that to them i know in 20 seconds the
1: audience yeah we're all as miss americas we're sitting in the audience going My gosh, don't do these to don't do that to these girls, please do not, or these young ladies. Um, but but again, you're right, it does spur on growth, you know, it makes you think on your feet in 20 seconds. I will say that when you then become a professional after that and you're thrust into the media, you do have to think. Although, I, I will tell you that there's not many times in my 20 years, other than running for public office, that I have. Been so flat out asked really um, insane questions like that just up front. Like no one's ever said Hillary could. What do you think? You know, mm-hmm. I mean they've not really shoved that in my face. So I still think that we probably should rethink that. But it is the thinking on your feet quite quickly. And when you are Miss America, there are situations. I'll never forget I was asked um, at an interview. Um, it was a sports radio, we were at Disney, because they were a sponsor my year, and there were lots of different stations, and the guys asked, so how tiny was your bikini, is, you know, when you were competing, and, you know, haha, and that funny, right, you're going to try to trip Miss America, and I said, well, you know what, why don't we talk about how tiny the budget is for the Department of Veterans Affairs this year, and so you learn how to throw it back, you know, (laughs) you learn to drop the mic, right, and that is the advantage of that experience is learning how to think on your feet and bridge the the difficult conversations into something. And so I guess I would tell the young ladies, even preparing today, if you get asked those questions, be prepared, you know, not only to maybe answer it, but, you know, politicians are always trained on how to bridge into something Um a little more relevant to themselves and they sort of deflect away. And so there's a really, there's an art to doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that every contestant should be prepared, especially um, in the next couple of years of learning how to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I have a very selfish question that I would like to ask, which okay. is um, <laughs> again, just f- from our fathers um, what was his reaction when you won your Years, Miss America? Because you know, I spent a lot of my life growing up with my father who, like, my whole life growing up, his mantra was like, I'm tough. I'm a Marine. Marines don't cry. Like, we don't show this emotion. And then in the last couple of years, as he's aged, he's become a lot more emotional and a lot more, like, free coming with <laughs> With his, you know, like he, he can cry very easily now, like things that were so foreign when I was like growing up. So, um, and so, and he got very invested in my, you know, my Miss America journey and that competing and he became very emotional, uh, you know, at the end of my time when I started having some success and I started winning. So I'm just so curious what your father's reaction was.
1: Yeah, you know, I I had the same exact experience with um, my father, where Mm -hmm. growing up, uh, you know, very tough, you know, we don't cry. Um, Of course, he had, you know, was dealing with co-occurring issues because of his military service, which made it very hard. And for a lot of my uh, earlier journey, you know, it was was hard to get him as involved. And he would get very upset when I lost, certainly. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm never coming back, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll never forget My next to last year, we were on the dance floor because at Miss Kentucky, we had a couple like dances during competition week, which was awesome. And my dad, who never got out on the dance floor ever, all of a sudden, he came into like our little dance circle, started dancing. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, it blew my mind. But you know, what's interesting is looking back at that moment. That was a pivotal moment, not only for me, but for my father and Mm -hmm. his emotional and psychological journey. That was such a huge moment. I I still get chicken, uh, I still get uh, goosebumps uh, thinking about it because that moment when he decided that he was going to join in instead of just observe, that was a huge psychological step for him in coming home from Vietnam, totally. Mm-hmm. And it just then progressed from that moment on. And I, I, I look at my dad today and, and how he is and, and the grandfather he is, the papa he is to my girls. And they don't know him any other way other than being lighthearted, always taking the sunshiny you know, view of things. He's happy all the time. He does get emotional, Um, At times, watching movies, you ask him to watch this movie called Dance with the White Dog, he'll cry even just saying the name of the movie, Um, but he... His journey has been so amazing. And my Miss America year really wasn't just about me going on and doing this journey for veterans. But my whole family became a part of that journey. When they couldn't book me, people couldn't. They would book my parents. They would call. My parents traveled during my Miss America year sharing our family story. So, I mean, they traveled all over the country. It was insane. And I so I just so think much. about This crazy uh, journey that they all went on, but it really was this healing process for my dad. Mm -hmm. When I think about, you know, I think I became Miss America really for my dad's healing more than anything else. And (laughs) the man he is today, I call him Mr. America. I mean, he is, he's an amazing Man, you know, my parents, you know, survived all of that time. They celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary just a couple of years ago. And I think about what my mom went through and being supportive, even in times it wasn't easy to be supportive. Um, And when I won Miss America, you know, my dad was an incredible athlete growing up. And he did not get to go to the Olympics because he was injured in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, had always prayed from the time I was a little girl that I would be able to do a sport well enough to go to the Olympics for my dad so he could see one of his children march in the Parade of Countries. And so obviously, I mean, I play tennis, but I just did not play anything well enough to be an Olympic athlete. But Miss America was sort of my way to for my father to be able to see one of his children achieve something, um, of that sort of status. And so I'll never forget when I talked to my dad afterwards, I said, dad, I, I've never made it to the Olympics, but I hope Miss America's okay. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> this is but fine.
1: I, yeah. He lo- he loved it. Still loves it. Yeah. He's still so proud. They still have this sort of shrine in the the basement with like accolades and things for my miss America years. So, um, I know that he's still really, really super proud.
0: Oh, I love it. It just, it, yeah, that warms my heart, but I always wanted to know that (laughs) just from my own selfish question. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Um, it's incredible.
0: We know that you're strong and empowered. We know that you want to make an incredible impact on this world. And thankfully, there's an online boutique for you to represent that message every day. The Ona Boutique has two lines of t-shirts and engraved gold bar necklaces to remind you that you're capable of incredible impact on this world. And the proceeds benefit Operation Not Alone, a Wisconsin-based nonprofit supporting our troops, veterans, and mental health initiatives all across the country. Head to theonaboutique.com to shop their collections and get free shipping with the code IMPACT. That's the O-N-A boutique.com and use code IMPACT. I want to kind of switch to um, your time serving in political office. I know we touched on it a lot, you know, throughout your Miss America conversations, but I really wanna, you know, learn a little bit more about what you were able to do as a commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Veteran Affairs. Um, you were appointed to that position. So how did that all come about?
1: So over my 20-year history, I have worked with every commissioner before and after me. And the Department of Veterans Affairs actually got started under my husband's administration when he was lieutenant governor. And when they formed this department, um, I had the great privilege of working with the very first full time Commissioner General S. Beavers, who then I got to later work with again when he was the executive director of all the state commissioners around the country, which was awesome. So I got a chance to see this department grow from just a handful of people to then, by the time I became commissioner, had a little over 700 employees and a little under a, about a $96 million budget. And then when I survived through the switch of administration, and then was asked to stay on as deputy commissioner, which then was nine hundred ten employees and one hundred two million dollar budget. Um, I had I had been able to see it grow from its very inception to the height right of its capabilities. Mm-hmm. You know, four veterans nursing homes, five state veterans cemeteries, one hundred twenty counties worth of services for veterans throughout the throughout the state. It really was a culmination of everything that I had worked for. So I know it's probably strange for people to hear me say that becoming commissioner of that department um, in the state of Kentucky was really and will always be one of the highlights of my life. I mean, it really for the governor to ask me to take on this position was a recognition of the work and the experience that I had gained, um, the success that I had had in you know, doing legislative initiatives, not only at the state level, but at the national level as well, uh, for the social awareness impact that I had made for that issue. It really was a recognition of, Hey, we think you're capable of taking this department and making it even greater than it is. Cause I don't want to take away from any of the other commissioners that were performing because they were all great. It's just, we each brought our own and continue to bring our own, uh, piece to the puzzle Mm -hmm. of how we create more services and awareness for our veterans throughout the state. And when I came on board, we did not have a full-time women veterans coordinator. Our homeless veterans initiatives had uh, been a little stale. And I had seen some of those things that I actually worked with the very first commissioner on helping to establish, kind of just maintain and not grow. And so the first two things that I really attacked were homeless veterans initiatives, and women veterans initiatives. We created a 2015 year of the woman veteran in the recognition that women veterans uh, population was continuing to grow and will continue to grow in the state of Kentucky, while our male population is going to continue to decline. So in a state as small as ours, we have over 24,000 women veterans, which is a pretty substantial uh, percentage when you think about a state our size. And then also, of course, um, our largest population of veterans being Vietnam veterans, of course, being the daughter of a Vietnam veteran, it was a very impactful time to be able to bring not only them to the forefront, but also the family's perspective, because families of Vietnam veterans are still dealing with the aftermath of dioxin exposure. Most people look at it as Agent Orange exposure, but there were a lot of other dioxins that have other colors, uh, red, blue, there all kinds, and uh, when we talk about dioxin exposure and the ripple effects of that, you know, other countries actually recognize that in grandchildren of Vietnam veterans and here in the United States, we're not so readily available to talk about that. And we talk about that disparity, how much further we still have to go. And so it was hugely impactful time. I took a lot of my personal stories and personal accomplishment and journey and added to that role as commissioner. Um, What was really great was being able to bring in the experience of social media and marketing. So as a business, so I have these great little background nuggets, right? I've got the business side of Heather, and then I've got the philanthropy side, nonprofit side of Heather. So government, financially works more like a nonprofit because we're always in some sort of deficit spending. It's not a profit generating business model. And people who say, you know, we need to run government like a business. You can't really, because legally it's not a profitable, uh, budget. It's not, that's not how it is structured, uh, legally to be able to do, but you can sustain it at a, uh, at a cost neutral level. And that's what you're always desiring to get at is cost neutral, right? To be able Mm -hmm. to at least pay for yourself. And that doesn't always work. And so we're always in some sort of deficit spending and nonprofits are a lot like that, right? It's not a profit generating uh, budget model. Business wise, um, you are in a profit generating model. You hope to be that marketing perspective from the business side is what you can kind of bring into government. So I was able to bring in my understanding of the financial uh, process of government and bring in that marketing side of business, which we could legally incorporate into government, which government does so poorly because they don't really understand marketing and social media. They're starting to, but they usually don't have people within the system that come from that background. So Bringing both of those into the Kentucky Department of Veterans Affairs, we were able to see a lot of not only growth within programs and services, but in civilians and veterans understanding what we had to offer. Because a lot of people get their State Department of Veterans Affairs confused with the Federal Department of Veterans Mm -hmm. Affairs, and people out there should know every state has their own state-funded Department of Veterans Affairs, which is separate, but yet works together with the federal department. And why is that important? It's important because that state department, its sole mission is its state's population of veterans. They are there to advocate for that state. They don't advocate for another state's, um, you know, department or another state's population of veterans. It is that state's veterans. And each state also has some of its own uh, set of programs and services. You know, we in Kentucky have a homeless veteran sort of trust fund where it really works on the prevention of homelessness. So if you have, if you're behind in your rent or if it's a formerly homeless veteran trying to get an apartment, then there are provisions that are put forth that you can allocate a one-time grant uh, for that veteran to pay a utility or to pay rent to prevent them from becoming homeless. So. Every state has its own unique services that way. The federal department helps us in maintaining and building some of those awesome amenities like the nursing homes and the cemeteries. But then after those are built, the state then takes ownership of that. And then all of the operations from henceforth um, after that ownership is transferred are the state's responsibilities. So um, it's important for people to understand that division and having that social media and marketing background, I was able to connect with media in a way that we just had not before. And so a lot of people who had been unaware of our services became more aware of our services. So that was a lot of that success um, that I had during that time.
0: Yeah, for sure. What, and I'm sure this is a really difficult question to ask, but like, is there one particular moment or thing from your time as commissioner or even deputy commissioner, um, that really was kind of like your proudest moment of being in public office?
1: Well, hiring our very first full-time women veterans coordinator, um, for the state Mm -hmm. of Kentucky, uh, Luanda Knuckles, and she was an amazing women veterans coordinator. She, um, had served, um, of course, in the armed forces, was in the National Guard, uh, I believe still is, and she was able to do an amazing job of building a database. We just, we didn't really know. I mean, we had numbers of how many veterans were supposed to have in the state, and the VA extrapolates you know, those numbers based on an equation, certainly, but it's a very different thing to then know where those women veterans are and how to reach them because, My whole mantra in service is you have to meet people where they are, you can't make them come to you. And government is so bad at meeting people where they are um, just because of a lack of resources or understanding about how to do that and how how to understand how to meet the needs of women veterans in Eastern Kentucky is very different than how you meet the needs of uh, women in Western Kentucky. It's a totally different culture, uh, even for a state our size. And I think a lot of states have that dichotomy sort of going on. And so she was able to, to come up with uh, statewide women veterans conferences, and then we had regional women veterans conferences. So I was really proud that we were able to uh, navigate the process uh, financially to be able to come up with the funds to hire a full-time Women Veterans Coordinator. Um, But there are also other moments that are less public, like Mm -hmm. when you have to go before the Legislative Committee um, for Veterans Affairs uh, called VMAP, was the acronym in our state, and to be able to talk about the fundamentals of your budget and understanding. That's something... Handling those administrative responsibilities, uh, while I had had a little bit of experience on a smaller scale previous to that, um, it really stretched my uh, my growth ability during that time. Being able to wrap my brain around, you know, this extremely large budget—a budget that's very difficult because you do have federal funds coming in, you do have state funds coming in—understanding uh, what unrestricted funds are as opposed to restricted funds. And so studying that complete budget as a commissioner was very important for me to understand where every dollar was going, because I think a lot of people in government have a broad view of what is going on financially in their departments um, or in state government, but to really understand and look at the books. I mean, I had a whiteboard in my office and every other day we were crunching numbers based on future projections of our allocated legislative funds and that's very important it was very important for me I'm not one of these leaders that likes to just I like to delegate authority I think that's very important to give people authority to do what they need to do based on their expertise but I'm not a leader that doesn't want to be involved I want I want complete understanding of mm-hmm. what's going on I may not be the expert and of course you know we had a great accounts manager um, who helped us certainly but I need to be in, I need to know, because if stuff hits the fan, you're going to be the first to be blamed for it, (laughs) certainly. So you need to know um, the intricate details. And it really empowered me, not only as a commissioner, but I think as a younger woman in leadership, I'm still the only woman that's ever served in that role as commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Veterans Affairs. And I think that it did a lot uh, for me as a person. Um, I think that it also built a lot of credibility, Um, even during my crazy campaign, which I know we'll get to, um, you know, I had a lot of credibility on both sides of the aisle because I've worked in two different administrations because I'm just a very honest, very upfront, I'm a very resolution oriented person who just wants to look at the facts and understand how we can gather those together and all move forward together. And people saw that in me. And I've heard and received lots of compliments um, as to that. So it was a very powerful moment for me personally to be able to serve in that capacity
0: yeah I love that. um and kind of like you you hinted towards let's talk about so you ran for Secretary of State. can you i mean what was your decision? why did you want to kind of you know dive into an elected office versus once your your time as an appointed office was at an end?
1: So a lot of people over the last you know, 20, since the beginning, right, of mm-hmm. Miss America, they saw the aptitude in me to be able to navigate government successfully and to work in that role, which is something, again, growing up, my family was not politically involved or, or working in government. I had served oddly as tourism director in Maysville, which is another story in and of itself. So i would worked briefly in government, but not in a capacity that was gonna be large, like an elected role. But people saw that aptitude in me and always encouraged me, certainly, but I think sometimes people blindly do that to anyone who can speak well and you know has a good image We're like, oh, you should run, uh, certainly. But the nature of the beast is very, very different for people mm-hmm. like us. Because people like us who like to make a difference no matter what the environment is and who, who actually play well with others, um, regardless of their beliefs or variances in our background, doing the elected process is very hard. I did run for secretary of state because... I know that it doesn't seem uh, the normal thing for the Department of Veterans Affairs to have close ties with the Secretary of State, but oddly enough in Kentucky, we have a lot of programs that we share. And so the Department of Veterans Affairs worked with Secretary of State on creating uh, voting space within our veterans nursing homes because in rural communities, we're always looking for uh, better spaces to bring public in to be able to have a voting precinct. And we had these wonderful veterans nursing homes that it not only allowed for the veterans within those nursing homes to be able to have easier access to vote, but it brought the community into those nursing homes in a way that also created awareness of the amenities that we had as the Department of Veterans Affairs. So it was a very twofold win-win situation. Um, And then we also uh, worked with Secretary of State on helping to champion um, overseas military voting capability. And that was great. Uh, We actually did that. I did that before I became commissioner uh, with the previous Secretary of State and helped to lobby for the passage of a bill, Senate Bill 1, to be able to offer that office the capability of broadening that um, ability for overseas military, because we have a lot of National Guard in our state that actually get deployed for federal service a lot, probably more so than percentage wise in a lot of other states, even for a state our size. And so there were a lot of things that we could do. And then on the business aspect, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Secretary of State's voting is just a percentage of what that title does. And in our state, the majority of the staff and budget actually comes from the business services that happen through the Secretary of State's office. And of course, if you have a business, you have to register and go through the Secretary of State's office to get set up, which is very important. But there were also um, some veteran-owned business um, aspects that Uh, we worked with with the Secretary of State uh, called Boots to Business, which encouraged um, free filing fees annually for veterans who started businesses. Um, I was on board uh, on the committee for uh, service-disabled veteran-owned business accreditation, which was very important, which partnered also with the Department of Finance, and which gives veteran-owned businesses a a very official accreditation. So you knew if someone said it's a veteran-owned business that it was an accredited veteran-owned business, which I think is very important to understand and support those businesses owned by veterans, especially service-disabled veterans. And so I wanted to not only be able to be supportive of those initiatives, but I thought that being Secretary of State would be great to actually be in charge of some of those initiatives to actually grow those. So my reason for running wasn't to prepare me for yet another elected role. I mean, I could have chosen to run for Congress. I could have chosen to run for governor. But, you know, Secretary of State was a, it's a very administrative, heavy role. And it's a, it's what they call a ministerial office. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but it is a legislatively led Office, So the the General Assembly actually dictates the roles and responsibilities of the Secretary of State. And you're not really supposed to have any particular political leaning uh, when you're serving in that official capacity. And that to me was perfect for me because there are still, even though I did not win that race, I still got about 100,000 extra crossover votes, which mm-hmm. I know were a lot of my military and veteran community who were Republicans that crossed over to vote for me because they understood that When I'm put in a position, I don't serve as a Republican, Democrat, or an Independent. I serve because I'm serving the people. I really don't care what people's political affiliations are. If I'm put into a position to do a job, I'm doing that job for all the people, not for some of the people. And so I really hoped during that campaign that that would come forth and that people would see that experience. But the one thing I did learn in running... Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what I was supposed to learn by putting my my hat forward like that, but I I did learn that it's it's something that I'm not sure is in my future again, just because people like me who like to actually get work done, it's not really a great effective way to get work done, Um, and I'm not saying that elected officials don't get work done, but there's so much time involved in having to navigate these false superficial obstacles that get thrown in the way. And I just, I don't know if I have the patience at the age I am now to tolerate that. I think that's really why I just, I really like the appointed position where, you know, your experience is recognized, you're given that chance, and it, and it has nothing to do with whether, what your political affiliation is. It has to do with what your experience is. And I really enjoyed that. Um, The campaign in and of itself, you know, the thought that our, in our country, we spend billions and billions of dollars on these crazy campaigns when we've got so many social issues out there that could utilize that funding irritates me to no end. And I know that, you know, my husband and I talk about you know, campaign finance, you know, we used to have where each candidate would get so much money and that was the cap and they would have to creatively spend. And I know that one party looks at it as, oh, that's welfare for politicians. Well, if you really want a fair and balanced campaign, that's the way it probably needs to be done. Because spending 80 hours a week, making phone calls, begging people for money, which isn't even tax deductible, for goodness sake, you know, it's just insane to think that campaigns Cost so much money, and it costs absurd amount of money for signs, for staff, for campaign commercials, which a lot of times feed false narratives. And you go, "Wow, this these really campaigns are not about showing the aptitude of a candidate's um, ability to to do the job once they're in office." This really isn't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I, I believe in that anymore because I look at these campaigns and I go. What does that even have to do with the office that you're going to to be running? Mm -hmm. You know, if you if we hired CEOs of companies or executives of companies, you know, based on a campaign commercial, boy, instead of a resume, I'm not so sure so many companies would do very well. So it's very, it was a very big learning experience for me I guess in understanding the political process as a woman it was very eye-opening to see that sexism is still uh, alive and thriving in that process which was very disheartening to have to navigate that um, and just to see what the voting public believes and doesn't believe and how they vote and uh, you know I just what I do now is I just I just pray for for Voters and, and the public that they choose to be more educated themselves in the process. Um, I, you know, I'm not somebody who tells people who they have to to vote for. It's a very personal decision. But that they educate themselves and don't just follow the masses and what they believe. You know, our our Facebook social media culture, while it is great for uh, nonprofits and for uh, businesses and for you and I for what we've been able to do, we utilize social media for its benefits certainly. But social media also the dark side of that is that it perpetuates mistruths and misinformation like nobody's business. It's like the old secret circle where you would tell the secret and then you would pass it around the circle, and by the time it came back to the original teller, it was a totally different secret. And that only happened among what your your circle of six. And think about circles, 6 billion, um, then, and how that just those lies and mistruths just spread. And, and as one person, it's hard to combat all of that. So it's, um, it's, I have a love hate relationship with social media, certainly.
0: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people do. And I think, I think what you just said about, you know, we don't hire CEOs of companies the same way we hire people to run our states and our country. <laughs> you know, we right. don't look at those resumes. And really, and I think the hard part too is, you know, right now coming up, we're just a couple of weeks away from that presidential election. And every commercial is just like, well, he's a bad person. No, he's a terrible person. Oh,
1: right. It's awful.
0: Is, right. But it's nothing <laughs> to do with like, but what kind of job will you do? It's just, no, no, no. He's worse than I am. Trust me. <laughs> like you know, there's-
1: no merit there. I I did not realize that in a campaign, you spend thousands of dollars on opposition research, you know, and it was really, when they told me that I went, well, I can tell you everything negative that people are probably going to say about me. I've been in the public for the last 20 years. I I don't have to, I shouldn't have to pay. And then you find out all these, and, and I don't even know if they're all true about the opposition, but you find out you get, you get this huge binder of negative things about the opposition. And I'm like, my job is not to focus on making someone else look bad. If I have to try to make someone else look bad in order for me to step up the ladder, then obviously I'm not enough. And unfortunately, Mm. you know, my opposition did do that every chance that they got, they, you know, lied about me. They had Mm -hmm. misinformation about me. Um, I was pretty confident that after the very, public 20 years I'd had in Kentucky, that people would know me better than that. Um, Obviously that didn't work out, but I was also not just running against that person, but I was running against a movement, right, mm-hmm. in between parties, which was kind of insurmountable, uh, certainly. But, you know, even in debates, and I, I will say the one thing that I probably would do different, and, and maybe not, who knows, um, during debates, you know, I always took the high road. I didn't make any digs, even when digs were being made to me. And, you, and my children said, you know, you could read it on your face that you just wanted to reach across and sort of, you know, you know, give him what for, uh, you know, to kind of set the story straight, and there were a yeah. lot of things that I could have said um, about certain social media history that would have really been devastating, not only to that candidate, but to the fam- their family as well, and, but that's not my job, right? right? It's not, it's just to me, as a viable person, and as a professional, why should I have to, to dumb myself down to that level to do that, and I don't agree with that. I don't. I, you know, and these debates are are, are so uh, superficial as well. And and if you really want to know how people are going to lead, then you know, have some individual conversations about very practical information. Um, it was it was an eye-opening experience, certainly. But, um, you know, I, I, even in, in this political environment, which, you know, in hindsight, you look at all that we're going through with the pandemic and with the election issues, you know, there are moments where I go, wow, I'm, I'm glad I'm not Secretary of State now, because that, that's a huge yeah. challenge in every state. Not that it always mm-hmm. isn't some sort of challenge, but you've got dual challenges going on right now. But, um but I would have done a great job. I'm just, I'm that kind of worker. You know, any, anyone that I've worked with in the past and anyone I'll work with in the future, I will tell you people always get more than what they pay for when I come on board, because I'm just that type of worker who just, Mm -hmm. you know, I I work 24 seven. Um, I know that that might not always be healthy, but I meet my objective, and I'm passionate about the objectives that I have to meet, and I'm and I'm willing to work with everybody. I'm a very team-oriented person. I think that that's what I miss the most right now um, as a business owner because I have a small business and I downsized my business in order to be in government the last mm-hmm. uh, five and a half, you know, six years, and so it becomes a little lonely, uh, certainly. And Stephen and I have lots of projects. That keep us more than busy. We own the Rosemary Clooney uh, Museum, um, and those collections. We have the White Christmas movie collection. um, Mm -hmm. So that is operated in Augusta, Kentucky. We have volunteers that do that, and a nonprofit that handles a lot of that work. But we oversee all of that, and so we move that collection around the country. We're putting a book together about White Christmas that comes out next year. Stephen has a land trust at six thousand acres that protects Floyd's Fork here in Jefferson and Bullitt counties in Kentucky. And that's land management, so I'm having to learn a lot about that because that's not what my history certainly was in. But it's something I'll have to take over one day. We have the Kentucky Prostate Cancer Coalition because my husband is a prostate cancer survivor, and we fund free screenings at our Kentucky State Fair that screens thousands of men um, since 2004 uh, for prostate cancer because we are a higher state at risk for prostate cancer than a lot of states around us. Um, And then, of course, I have my Veterans Foundation um, and then my business. So. But a lot of that work is done internally and with, very, uh, with volunteer staff or uh, volunteers. So I miss having um, a large uh, corporation or organization uh, to work with because I really love working with the team. I can't remember which president it was that said it might be Truman that said, imagine all the great things can get done if, if no one cared about who got the credit. And I'm that kind of person. I really I don't care. Uh, to get the credit, I hate talking about, you know, oh, I did this, and I did that, and this, you know, this was me alone, because nobody does anything, uh, gets anything done alone, and I just, I love working as a team to make projects happen.
0: Yeah, I I love everything you just said, and clearly from a resume like that, you're clearly uh, very bored <laughs> and need more things to fill oh, out. yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I, so, you know, I really have, I think, three Overarching questions. I kind of want to. I want to end this interview on. And number one um, is again a little selfishly because this has always been my thought. Because, like you said, a lot of people like us will kind of be encouraged to go into public office. Just you know, with the public speakings and all that kind of fun stuff. And my big reason not to do it which of course is kind of productive because it's people like us who should be in these positions who want to really Mm -hmm. get the work done, but it's, it's terrifying. Um, is honestly, I would be more scared, not of the, the slander or anything that would come out of it. Just the idea that no matter who you are, what side you're on, how well you're doing and what you're believing in, like someone out there is just nuts enough that like wants you dead Like, I would just feel terrified all the time about that. Like, can you speak to that a little bit? Cause that's one of, that's my biggest thing. I'm like, if I just kind of stay in my lane and do my own thing out of that arena, like, no one's, no one's plotting an assassination of mine. (laughs)
1: It, it yeah. is really interesting. So uh, from the time you become Miss America, you deal with um, crazy people um, mm-hmm. out there. And I, I don't mean to say crazy and make light of mental health. Mm-hmm. I mean, people who actively think um, really crazy, insane thoughts of I want to kill this person or I own this person. I mean, getting letters of people that say, you know, um, I. I want you for myself. I'm going to come kidnap you. And then, you know, or I hate your fiance because you're mine. And then you have to get the FBI involved. I mean, a lot of us have to deal with that when you take on that national title. And so um, that calms down to a little bit of a degree after your year. But I think that even women, you know, I dealt with the stalker even before I was Miss America. And Mm -hmm. so that, kind of prepared me even for that next step when I did become Miss America and had some people come out of the woodwork that the FBI had to be involved with. But I never thought in a million years that in the political process that you would have situations in this process where people actively wanted you either dead, imprisoned, or to just disappear. And when you hear your comments or read comments, especially on social media, because people think they have all kinds of anonymity on social media, which they don't. (laughs) And you go, I can't believe that normal people are willing to say these vicious things about really wanting people dead, wanting people to disappear. It is scary when you think about the world that our girls are growing up in, or our children are growing up in. And I go, wow, you need to be vigilant and, and praying really for protection all the time. And again, in this political realm where people don't necessarily want you out of the way, they want you destroyed. Hmm. And that's much different. When I asked my dad, because, of course, our fathers lived through protests, right? During protest time with Vietnam and women's mm-hmm. movement and everything. And now we're kind of dealing with this- not the same but different, uh, but protest and unrest, a lot of civil unrest in our country, especially even in my own community here, that I asked my dad, I said, does this, is this reflective at all? Does this remind you of your time with protest and, you know, brawl burning and all that? And he said yes and no. He said, you know, yeah, he, he saw protest certainly, but he said people still had a respect for life for each other's lives Uh, back then. He said, today, there is no respect for human life. People have pure hatred um, within their hearts toward other people. And he said that's something that he recognizes as being very different from what he went through. And I recognize that. It's really concerning that we, um, even in movements, when we want to see change, instead of effectively working toward change, we choose to berate or degrade the other side who we should be trying to coax over or to work with. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that blame, it's that we wish you, if we felt ill will, we want you to feel ill will. We want you to feel what we felt. But um, there was, uh, oh, I forget who said it, but a very powerful person uh, said that his father said, instead of treating people how you were treated how about you inst- how about you treat people how you want to be treated regardless of how you yourself was treated and that's like the simple gold rule right right do unto others as you would have done unto you and it seems like a pretty simple thing but we as a society have moved so far away from mm-hmm. that ability of that rational thinking that that that's what concerns me most about the environment that we have today in our society. Yeah. It's just, it really is terrifying. And I
0: think the fact that people have such um, anyone can have a large platform on social media to to just spew more hatred is, it really is terrifying. So, you know, I kind of thank you for speaking on that because that's it's always been my biggest like reservation is just the amount Mm of, of like you said, pure hatred in people's hearts is,
1: well, and I insane. hate it that it's a bullying platform too. Like you said, you know, people like us are people that you, you, when you know our work ethic and you see mm-hmm. what we get done and our productivity, where are the people that should be right in government, like helping to make things happen in a very positive way. Because right. no matter how negative the situation is, you can always look at it in a positive light to say, how can we make this? We know this is what the issue is. How do we move forward together? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no matter who gets the credit. And because of the those that bullying that happens, and I know that might seem like a very juvenile word, but it but it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Because of that hatred and that bullying and that threat, it's that threat that keeps us from wanting to engage. And I and I hate that. It really yeah. is. That's one of the things that I don't use that word hate very often, but I hate the fact that there are there are people and movements in society that prevent me from, uh, from wanting to do and participate in roles that, that I think I would really be good in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on this, this like turned very dark. I'm so sorry for that. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you have, right. Very true. So in light of, of that, um, conversation, do you have any advice for someone? And I'm going to Um, segment that a little bit someone who wants to run either for a local or a state office and then more particularly for for young people and then also for women you know because it's a I think one thing as a as a mid-20s something looking at even this presidential cycle you know aside from just the gender inequality that we see like you know, it's all men in their 70s, right? And so we're like, okay, if we want to see a different world, like we have to get in at a younger level and stop waiting until like retirement ages to hop in on this like bandwagon. Um, so what advice would you have for someone looking to really pursue this avenue uh, to make a difference, to, to change the world that we're living in? What kind of advice would you have there?
1: So that's a very open-ended, uh, certainly question. Very broad. But I, right, very broad. So as someone who actually is, you know, my husband is significantly older than I am. You know, he just turned 67. So I I I have and I always want young people and people involved in a public process. You should always be able to remove yourself and your personal feelings from a situation to get a global view of the situation. I mean, I guess in the end, maybe I'm more of a moderator type person, a mediator, because I want people and sides to come together to collectively figure out a resolution for a problem. But I think that that's really how government should be working. So I'm, you know, 45. My husband is now 67. So he is that, what people are calling that retired white man. Well, okay, so I do, I would like to see more gender equality, certainly in government, but I also know enough that I'm not gonna demonize, you know, my husband for being a 67 year old white man. You know, he's more than that. He is someone who has been a surgeon. He's been a public servant. He's seen a lot of life. I think there's a lot to learn from older people, even old white men is what, you know, people keep saying um, about what they've seen in life. Because people who are older have the benefit of we're all young at some point, we're all vibrant and have these, you know, idealistic things but then to go through life and experience what life has to offer and at the end be able to offer this great perspective on what that journey is so right now i think our society has two different factions right we have the very young and loud and we have the older more conservative who's been through that process and it's really getting everybody to kind of come together and stop this generalizing of those populations. You know, I want to see the older population stop generalizing the young populations. I want to see um, young population stop generalizing, you know, and calling old white men. I just don't think there's anything productive whatsoever in grouping all of these people under these generalized stereotypical terms. And I do understand that stereotypes are, are stereotypes for a reason, because there's always going to be true factual people within those. But if we only ever group people together, then we're really limiting um, the learning of the, from the experience of those groups of people. And I even think that happens racially, you know, right now we're dealing with this huge divide in our country and I have, you know, I have lots of friends from all different walks of life. And if there's one thing I could tell um, all of these sides who are trying to get what they feel like they need and what rightfully um, that they need in order to be productive in our society, it would be, how can we achieve what we need Without demeaning the people who we feel like need to come into our corner. You know, how can you get old white men involved in your process if you keep Mm. calling them old white men? Because that's a non starter. I think about Communications, right, and people who are experts in communications. I'd love to have someone at the national level really have this conversation. You know, how do you win over? It's the old, uh, you know, adage of Dale Carnegie: winning friends and influencing people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think you're going to get, you know, especially on the playground. I don't think you're going to become friends with someone by calling them names, and they're not going to win you over by calling you names. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) can solve this issue. So, in in a in a good world. Um, we would take a step back and we would come to the table together and say, Okay, I need to understand more about your perspective, and I want you to understand more about my perspective. And then let's figure out how we can come together in the middle. Because I do think that if we were really grown ups about it and we really were caring about it, that we could see a lot further. Um, productivity than, than what we see now. But, you know, in that being said that, you know, I, I would love for my daughters to become, you know, more engaged. I think that they are probably more socially engaged in uh, current events even than I probably am. I do tend to stay more in my lane, uh, certainly, because not only is it, I don't want to say it's comfortable because I'm always pushing the envelope within my lane, about Mm -hmm. spreading awareness and in issues that people don't recognize are in military and veterans initiatives. But, um, you know, they are much they use their social platform much more for speaking out, you know, for change. And they see a different perspective than even I see. So I have to try to take a step back and understand that, certainly, Mm -hmm. all the while they're doing that, taking a step back and understanding where my husband is sort of coming from as well, from his perspective. But having gone through the political process, getting them to understand what I felt going through it as well. And so for our young women out there, especially within the Miss America organization, I think, you know, encouraging each one of them to continue to be leaders, and leadership looks different for everyone, uh, certainly within their relative area. And, you know, if you choose to run for political office, just having a full understanding that, you know, it's not going to be uh, nice, um, and that you have to learn to rise above it. I think mental health. I went through some very dark moments running for office that I wish I didn't have to go through. But um, I've learned a lot about myself through that, certainly. And so there are going to be those moments. So gather people, good people around you who can help you in those moments, who can be with you on that path, that can help you um, gain insight or just mentally and emotionally carry you through those dark moments. When you feel like you certainly can't do that for yourself, there's nothing wrong with that certainly. Um, but that we do need to have, you know, more gender equality on both sides. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, independent, whatever you are, I think women bring a really fresh perspective. Uh, there was a study done uh, more than a few years ago, but it, it, it groups some women together through various backgrounds and, they had a priority list and they numbered the priorities of what they wanted to see happen in government and the same on the male side of what their priorities were. And, and women look a little more holistically, I think, and comprehensively at our social issues. And so like education was like number one, um, you know, some social services were number one because we are the caretakers. You know, I don't care what people say about gender equality. Women and men look at things differently. I think that women are our brains are wired to look at a global picture, uh, certainly. And while, you know, my husband has a great aptitude for, you know, looking at single things each time, I mean, and as a trauma surgeon he's very gifted at doing that, but I, you know, I feel like I'm the caretaker of the family, you know, I plan things. I, I'm the one that looks, you know, sort of into the future feeding, nurturing, medically, you know, trying to get those things done. And I think that women in government tend to do that, uh, as well. And we have a futuristic perspective, but we do so from a very um, uh, comprehensive sort of perspective when we think about our children. And so it was interesting that the men, of course, you know, economy, which is important, was like number one, and then it kind of went down. But it was a very telling picture of how women and men move differently in our ideology about what government should be working on and prioritizing. And so I think that you definitely need um, a more equal Uh, representation of that uh, to be able to move forward because on any committee or board you don't want everybody to think alike I mean you you have to solve problems so you have to have people who bring in different perspectives so with that you know I think that we have to have a bigger representation of who we are as America.
0: Absolutely and it's funny because in the first half of what you were talking about and how we like to uh, demonize those other um, demographics you know of like all the old white men and all the young, you know, millennials and Gen Zs were very loud on TikTok. Um, it is easy to do that. So in my head, the whole time, I was like, "Yeah, we just all need a more holistic approach." So then, when you when you said that, that's just naturally how women. <laughs> default. I thought that was funny, but it's true because that's not in a gender stereotype way. That's just biologically speaking. Our, our brains and our emotions and our, our hormones are wired to think a little bit differently than men, uh, which is why that equality is so important. I don't think anyone wants to see a government fully overturn and get rid of all men and become all women because we need both parts. It just needs that more equality. So I appreciate you saying that. Um So the last question that I have for you is because, you know, you clearly have a lot on your plate. (laughs) You do a lot of things. You wear a lot of different hats. So what would be more your, advice for someone who just because, you know, the audience of this podcast are nonprofit people, are social entrepreneurs, are people who are trying to do all the things and are very multi-passionate. Like how do you balance the fact that you have a thousand things that you care about and that you're trying to do at any given moment? Because I think people struggle with finding, striking that balance in themselves.
1: Well, first and foremost, I want to say I do not have the perfect equation for the perfect balance and that it's okay not to mm-hmm. have that. Um, I think that it's very important to understand that, you know, you can have it all, just not all at the same time. And mm-hmm. that, I, you know, you have to be very careful in what you prioritize. And so, you know, I look at my family, my daughters, um, you know, my aspirations, what I want to get done. And I try to be very sensitive in how can I prioritize yet not leave something, um, not leave something untouched. My children, of course, and my family are my most important. So I do have a priority in my, my faith, my, my family, and then everything else kind of goes down from that. But on any given day, because we are multifaceted and I don't have just one direction that I'm headed in because I've got lots of projects, which I actually thrive on having lots Mm -hmm. of projects. I think I'm a, I think, I think I'm a freelancer sort of by nature, mm-hmm. so I like project-oriented things. that have a beginning, middle, and an end, and so I just, Stephen and I talk on a daily basis about what our priorities are, and sometimes there are scopes of entire months where there's one project that just takes more, more of our attention than others while still maintaining some atten- a little attention. other things just to maintain status quo but you know like coming up you know we are transitioning our white Christmas exhibit into the upcountry museum in South Carolina which is very exciting but right now cataloging getting all of those things ready is our priority and luckily for us all of our projects do seem to be a bit seasonal so when it comes closer to winter um, and holiday that collection takes a majority of our our time you know in the summer uh, the prostate cancer screenings and the military educational exhibits take more of our priority because that's the season Um, springtime is a time where we actually get to focus a bit more on you know the future fund and a little bit in the fall as well because the season really helps um, in navigating and doing uh, hikes and canoes and things like that out on the property so we do try to um, kind of group the timing for those projects. In order to get done, but there are some days that it's just, it's a quagmire, you know, some days where you get overrun, and I will say, Stephen and I do tend to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which probably isn't the the healthiest, and you try to set some parameters. I I set parameters myself on on calls and emails and social media. You know, Stephen, as a former trauma surgeon, answers every single phone call. Uh, You'll find that I like texts, and I like emails. I don't always like phone conversations because there's too much time in salutations, you know, for me and sort of catching up. And if I'm at a very busy point, I just want people to get to the point and give me what I need to understand so I can go back and reread it or utilize it um, to move a project into the future. And so we have our very different ways of communicating, but they all seem to work together. And I am someone that is, you know, I sort of, I don't want to say Ben because people will take that negative, but But I'm very flexible and adaptable to situations, which, again, is, I think, a very successful trait for me. And so where Stephen sometimes seems to be um, a bit rigid in, in sort of his approach, but that's the way he's been effective. So then I learn how to maneuver around. and and help to get those projects done. And there are certain situations where he becomes my companion and helpmate. And then there are certain situations where I become the companion and helpmate in that situation. And so Mm -hmm. learning how to lead and follow is very important in order to be effective in getting things done. So running all of these uh, projects together, um, I think that that's the way we've been um, pretty successful. Can we be more successful? Sure, I mean, I think we always have goals that we wanna keep pushing the envelope for. Um, Will we, we, Will we ever be that you know retired couple that just walks on the beach every day? Probably not. I don't ever foresee <laughs> us just you know sort of you know settling down um, mm-hmm. and just doing that. And although that's not a just because I think that there are a lot of people who work their whole lives and and they're they're good with that and they certainly deserve that. But we are just very action oriented people that always want to be involved in making a difference where we can um, mm-hmm. and we have the ability to. So, um, you know, having all those balls in the air can sometimes be very tough, but I think if you keep your faith in your family as the, the first two focus and then everything else sort of falls in line under that, I think that that helps.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Heather, this has been I mean, not to sound cliche, but what a dream for me to be able to sit down and talk to you like this. I'm so excited that you, um, and this was a pretty long chunk of time. So thank you so much for sitting down with me and doing this. I think, um, I think a lot of your words will have a lot of wisdom for, for our listeners, but, uh, at minimum, this was just the biggest, uh, treat for me. So
1: (laughs) thank you. And I hope that, you know, I know the conversation's were a little bit long, but I hope people mm-hmm. are able to gain maybe some insight. And again, I don't have all the answers, nor does you know anyone, but I think moving along in life together is very beneficial and learning from each other. And I've learned a lot from you. I appreciate how you have taken, you know, your time in the Miss America organization and your title and your heart for veterans and you've created this mm-hmm. awesome podcast. Again, just another extension mm-hmm. of what you were doing and to see you be able to grow into <laughs> this, um, you know, is really exciting for me because I I just I feel like I'm on your journey with you and seeing you go through that has been I feel like sort of a big sister
0: <laughs> oh my gosh that's thank you <laughs> I have no words for that, that
1: <laughs>
0: thank you so much I just seriously this was such a treat I can't thank you enough um and I think this will just all of this will resonate with so many other people and minimum um this will just be a treasured podcast moment for me forever so <laughs> all right well, well, I
1: I'm proud of you take care
0: oh my gosh thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your day Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Make an Impact podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, would you do a little rate, review, subscribe dance? And if you really enjoyed yourself, would you share this on social media so someone else could catch the impact bug? Until next time, friend, I can't wait to see what kind of impact you make on your world.